right, so we've got Alex here from uh, For Gun Skincare today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jacobo. Nice to speak with you and be here. Awesome. We're super excited to have you. Where are you based? What part of the country? I am in Carlsbad, northern San Diego right now, but I'm from Philadelphia. My whole family is from the East Coast. And my husband got a remote job. And so we packed up and we're traveling all across the country. So we've lived in Maine. We've lived in Salt Lake City for the winter to snowboard. And now we're living in sunny San Diego. That's amazing. Congrats on the move to the West Coast. I used to live in Philly and now we're based in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. uh, I'm in L.A. all the time now for work. I wanted to come see you guys in person in L.A. Yeah. So yeah, we maybe. were um, in October, actually, we were planning on doing some in-person interviews, but it turned out that the venue we we're trying to get it fell through and it just no it became really hard to get everybody coordinated on the same days. I can imagine. So I can imagine. We went remote. So anyway, I would love to get things started hearing a little bit more about your story and how the brand got started, what were some of the things we were doing before. I saw you also work corporate before launching your own company. So we'd yeah. love to hear the story. Yeah, so I'm Alex Potash, the founder and CEO of Forgotten Skincare, and we are making skincare for your forgotten areas. So we create solutions for common concerns that aren't often being addressed by the beauty industry. And my background is in pharmaceutical advertising. So that's the corporate time that you probably are referring to mm-hmm. and specifically search engine marketing. So right out of college, I went into working for a big agency. It's owned by Publicis. It was called Razorfish at the time and specifically was hired to research and run advertising for Google ads. And okay. when I wanted to start my own business years into that, about six years into doing pharmaceutical advertising and healthcare advertising, I went to the search data and I knew that within the search data, I could try to find a white space. And so I ended up finding that there were hundreds of thousands of searches a month for dark underarm treatment related queries. But at the time, this research was in 2018, there was nothing out there that met consumer standards of being vegan, cruelty-free from harsh synthetic ingredients. That was like the whole clean beauty movement. So I thought, okay, there's an opportunity here to create something different to help people who are suffering from this very common concern of dark underarms. And specifically, I didn't want to include an ingredient called hydroquinone, which is commonly prescribed by dermatologists. But as getting to your dermatologist is difficult, you have to make an appointment, you have to figure out if it's on your insurance, and then you have to pay a copay and this and this. So I wanted to to reduce the friction there and come out with something that was not only safe, it was safe for all skin tones. Hydroquinone can't be prescribed for longer than I think three months. And especially in people of color, it can cause permanent like cell damage and color loss to specific areas that it's used. I wanted to come up with something that was just gentler, can be used long-term and you didn't have to go to a dermatologist to get So that's how the formula of the first product, the original underarm brightening deodorant cream, which is a mouthful. So for short, we call it the OG. And that's how that first product came around and how I got started in the skincare world. That's amazing. It's it's so interesting. You, this is the first time I've heard of um, such a targeted approach to starting a company and building a product in an area that it was, you know, underserved 
based on yes. search volume. Um, a lot of the times we find individuals that maybe experienced the problem themselves and then wanted to build a solution, but um, didn't have as much regard for competition or existing. Uh, maybe they did a little bit of research, didn't find exactly what they were looking for, instead of they want to launch it. But I love this like super scientific approach of like, people are looking for this thing, there aren't any decent alternatives, let's exploit that market opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Exactly. I knew that I couldn't just, I didn't want to just start a skincare brand to start a skincare brand with a face serum, with a hero ingredient or something, because there's so much of that out there. And when you're starting a company like that, there's so much competition and you really need cash to make that happen. And I'm bootstrapped. I started the company with $5,000 in my own savings while I was working full time. I was doing this at night, in the morning, in the stairwells of my current, at, at that time, my, my job. And yeah, so I just, I wanted, I knew that it needed to be niche and I can, it's baked right into the name. It's forgotten skincare, it's skincare that's forgotten about. So I'm going to continue to stay in that lane and come out with products and solutions for areas that are overlooked in serving underserved categories and people. So that's one of the follow-up questions I was going to have. You, know, you start with mm-hmm. this product, which, by the way, I love the name, Forgotten Skincare, Thank you. super cool. What, how do you think about new products? Obviously, you bootstrap this initial set of products. At some mm-hmm. point, you're going to need to buy or manufacture a significant amount, especially if you get into retail. Like When you think about new product lines and opportunities, are you also thinking about the manufacturing component, like how difficult it is to make a product, to formulate a product? Yeah, I go back and forth, honestly, because I'll have a conversation with one of my retailers and they'll be like, okay, you need at least eight SKUs to be on shelf. And then that makes me think, okay, do I want to be on shelf? Is that the right place for the brand? You know, do I need to be in store or can I continue just online with a very targeted approach? My gut is telling me that I should stay true to how I started the company, which is to create solutions for not every skin concern, but specific ones. And so I currently only have three SKUs and I'm very strategic about why, when, and what I'm launching. And I'm going to continue to do that. And I'm actually taking the brand in a bit of a pivot from focusing on just D to C and coming out with tons of, I was never going to come out with tons of SKUs, but I'm not coming out with tons of products for direct to consumer, but rather I am focused really specifically on retail and also B2B with working directly with estheticians. I think that's an area of opportunity that exists for my brand specifically that I I am going to explore and coming out with products that are specific for that market rather than trying to just do a ton and reach everyone. So that's really interesting. You're trying to move into retail like yeah. fairly soon in, in the development, right? And so- why do you feel like direct to consumer is going to be harder? Are you talking yeah. about? Are you thinking about like cost of acquisition? Are you thinking about lower lifetime value? Are you thinking about it's easier to manufacture when you have this predictable order sizes? The main thing I'm thinking about is the shift in the market away from influencers telling customers or telling people what they should be using, and the people's trust is shifting more towards the experts. I think people consumers are going to be asking their skincare providers, their dermatologists, their estheticians, their doctors, 
or just even influencers in the industry that are reputable people with degrees and licenses, like in certifications. I think people are going to switch towards that and trust these influencers less and less over time. So that's why I'm shifting away from focusing directly on direct to consumer and wanting to focus the shift now to partnering with people that have that certification, have that level of authority and having them back the brand. And I'm not talking about celebrities. I'm not, I have no interest in partnering with celebrities. I think that these celebrities that are coming out with skincare lines are doing so maybe in partnership with a dermatologist for a reason, because they, yeah. I think people are craving the real deal. The credibility, yeah. the real advice, like coming from someone that's reputable. Um, exactly. I, it's super interesting because these individuals, some of these statisticians might not have big followings. So how do you incentivize someone like that to work with you versus work with the 15 other options they have? Yeah. So the main way I'm planning on doing it and that I've started doing it already is to tell them that they have an opportunity to increase their loyalty of their customers and bring their customers back for repeat services. So I'm not saying, okay, if you provide waxing services, use this after the waxing treatment. I'm saying, you know, create a, a treatment that's specific for brightening, that's specific for ingrown hairs, that's underarm skincare, that's inner thigh skincare, that's intimate area skincare, and have them come in. You saw it a little bit with the vajayshal. I'm not really a fan of vajayshal. As a woman, I feel like that it's kitschy and it just doesn't feel like a sincere attempt to help improve that area of the body. I don't even like the word. I want to take a more serious approach to it and work with estheticians that want to come up with protocols that are specific for underarm brightening, specific for inner thigh brightening, and those other concerns in between waxing treatments. I don't think it can be all done in the same in the same treatment. And I don't think that really exists exists broadly. I don't think that the European wax centers of the world are offering this type of approach yet. They're all about like fast, fast, fast. How many people can we get in and out? I don't, I, I want to take a different approach. Yeah, they're probably not think about, or they don't really have good tools to think about lifetime value and customer retention. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. and reputability. One of the, one of the trends we're really seeing with brands right now is, is these kinds of partnerships from like co-op retail partnerships to like trying to do distribution partnerships with other brands, trying to package out multiple products in one sort of bundle. The other thing, there are companies like Boulevard, I don't know if you're familiar with it. There's mm -hmm. software that, they're based in Los Angeles, there's software that salons and statisticians use to run their business. Mm -hmm. um, Boulevard might have some you know, interesting distribution opportunities as well to work with them uh, as mm -hmm. a way for them to continue to provide a better service to the statisticians, provide products, not just software. Those are things might be that might be worth looking at. Um, but we see a lot of this. The traditional model of buying Facebook ads, buying Google search ads, it's become really expensive for many brands. And so everybody's looking through different ways to, to get distribution. But like you were saying, your product has to support that. It has to be a product that supports coming back. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's how I'm thinking about my creating products moving forward. Of course, there's 
the idea of creating products that are forever products, like the under eye masks, for example, that companies are coming out with where it's like, you can use this forever for years and years. But then there's the reality of it, which is I need to have customers that are on the business side that are continuing to come back to me. So it's trying to figure out how to marry the two. And I want to be, I want to provide things to my customers that drive effective and real results and hopefully results that they don't have to keep coming back. I want eventually, I want them to have results that they're happy with that they don't continuously have to use the same products. But the reality from the business side is that I need them to continue to come back to forgotten skincare because I want them to be lifelong customers. So it's about trying to find the products that meet both those needs. And maybe there is an opportunity for them to go on a journey. Maybe there is an entry level mm-hmm. product they come and use for a while and then they graduate into other types of products over time as their relationship yeah. with you deepens too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's a one, great point. One of, the, one of the big questions we we also, you know, hear a lot about is uh in the move to retail, don't think of going to statisticians or smaller shops where you can provide uh, a small batch of product. Uh, but think about going to someone like Sephora or doing those large distribution, like minimum eight SKUs and so on. If if you were to do that, how would you think about financing all of that? You bootstrap this yeah. business, you'd have to buy an enormous amount of product, account for trade spend, discounts, promotions, right. all those different things. How do you see yeah. that even for other brands like you? So I think it's important, and I've already been doing this, to set up relationships with investors, with bankers, with people that when that PO comes in, you can go to them and say, hey, here's the contract that's showing that they're going to they're ready to pay us $100,000 or whatever it is. So I need the the money to finance this. So that's how I've been approaching it. I have those relationships. I've been knowing that if that were to be something that were to come across my desk, that I'd be ready to finance it. I think that's advice I would give to other founders too, is don't take on investment unless you're bursting at the seams and you really need it. That being said, if you get a PO and you need the investment, be ready to go to that person that you have a relationship with and ask. That's how I've approached it up until this point. How have you managed to build all the different facets of the business? Because there's marketing, there's manufacturing, there's distribution. There's Obviously, you started, you bootstrapped this company. I'm sure you were doing absolutely everything on your own at the beginning. Right. How do you manage to start getting help? And what was the process of doing that? It just, it hasn't been linear. I started by working with a lab that was recommended to me by a friend, a colleague. And then from there, I was ordering the products in five gallon jugs and pouring them into jars in my kitchen with the help of friends and family. And then from there, I wasn't able to, I was bursting at the seams and I needed help. So from there, I moved out to a 3PL that was able to help me fulfill the orders because this is a similar story that I hear in a lot of founders, especially on your podcast. They're, there's too many orders. They're using the Ikea bags. They're bringing it to the post office. That was me. I was doing that too. <laughs> so I just wait until the brink of when I can't do any more. And then I find people to help me. So I'll learn everything I can myself. I'll do it myself. I'll package things myself. And then I move it out. 
I'll do the advertising myself. And then when I can't handle the advertising, I move it out. In some cases, it feels like a failure because in some cases, things have to come back to you. Like in the sense of the advertising, I've had to take that back on. I actually have stopped completely because of the costs. But those moments suck because it's like, oh, I feel like I finally hired someone to help me with this aspect of the business. And then I don't, and then something else turns and then I have to take it back on. So I think that's why it's important to always start by doing it yourself, even if it's what you have to focus most of your time on and then slowly shift it out. I would say that's the way to do it. I don't, I haven't encountered too many people that have a different opinion in that. I think that as a founder, you have to know how to do every single thing and you should always get your hand back in those things over, even if you've got it off your plate, like you should always go and like package a box here and there. So yeah, we find that it's uh, a lot of the times the founder wants to know how to do everything. So whenever it gets passed on to somebody else, um, they know what they're talking about. Right? They know what they're doing. So there's this right. inherent need to, to learn, to become a full mm-hmm. stack person almost yep. in your own business. Has the business always been remote since you started it? Yeah, so I started working on it in 2018. I took it full time in August 2019 and then launched the brand in January or February 2020. And Good timing. <laughs> yeah. Good timing. Um yeah, so great timing. So it was remote and then everything was remote anyway. So after that. So yes, it has always been remote. I have gathered my people together for certain things. Like we just exhibited at Cosmoprof and I had my team there with me. So that was really nice. I met with someone that runs, helps with my social media. We just had coffee and filmed some content at a cafe down the street. So I'll do things in person. I love being in person. I love working with people. I think that my best self comes forward and also the people that I'm working with just if we can get together in a room, I think that's where magic happens. But the reality of it is that it's cheaper and it's pretty much just as effective to work most of the time remote. That's just what I found. One of the things we talk about a lot, we're in productions very frequently. So we forced to be in person in California, also in New York. But we used to have this office in LA and it was this big kind of really creative industrial space. And it was I really loved going there. It was so awesome. And, and show up and everyone's there and there's a sort of energy to it. And now, you know, we're all, for the most part, remote. And I think it has a lot of benefits. Like you're saying, there's a lot of cost savings, not just for the company, but also for the people that don't have to commute and pay for parking and all those different things. And for the most part, it's great. But I think it's important to make an effort to get together every every so often. Right. Because, uh, I've been doing a lot of, it. I've been doing a lot of in-person things. But I like going to trade shows, going to conferences, like I'm going to Beauty Matter next is this week. Last week I was at Founder Made. So I feel like those types of in-person events are really important to just even show face at in the industry. But also with the customers, I'm doing an in-person event at one of the stores that carry my product. And I'm going to bring an esthetician in. And we're going to do head-to-toe consults for face and body. And I feel like I'm interested to see how the in-person event brings buzz and awareness and just creativity, spark creativity for myself and the people that I work with that are there. 
I've never done an in-person event and I, cause I just feel like it's such a small way to reach people, but I feel like it could have ultimately a big impact. I think word of mouth is so important and that's something that my brand is lacking right now. Full honesty. Yeah. I just don't think we have word of mouth because I've always just been online. So I'm hoping that doing this in-person event, I get some valuable insights and then I can replicate it if it goes well and maybe even do it one day in Macy's where my products are carried or wherever else retail uh, my products are carried. How do you find the effectiveness of these trade shows? Founder Mates, the Beauty Cons, the um, Beauty Matters. Mm, like how, so, you know, what is the mechanic to participate in them? What have you found useful? In them? I think you have to, it all depends on the goal that you go into it with. I've walked Cosmoprof two or three times before I exhibited. I only exhibited when I knew I had a goal of bringing, picking up more retail. Before that, my goal was meeting people, was finding packaging. So it, it just depends on what your goal is. I think Founder Made is a really small, it's a smaller event, but it's more, you get more FaceTime with people there. I didn't exhibit there. I don't know if I ever would. I think that I would want to stay with my goal of now trying to get into more estheticians' hands. So I don't think it's the right place for me right now. I'm actually looking at trade shows specific to the salon and spa world, which is a whole other area that I'm looking to learn. So basically, in short, I think it comes down to you have to go in with a goal. Don't just sign up for every single trade show. It's not financially feasible, and I don't think you'll get what you want out of it. Yeah, we've seen some of the prices for the straight shells are fairly steep. It's really expensive. And the reality of it is if you go in looking to get an immediate return on it, it's not going to happen. If anything, it'll take a year because those processes to get into a Target or an Ulta that are going to pay you back for what you've invested, it takes a year or two years or three years. You have to get on their radar first. So you have to have the cash and then you can't have the mindset of it's going to come back to me right away. What do you think? There's a little bit of a change of uh, uh, topic here, but what do you think it's coming for the industry as a whole? Have you noticed any kind of tectonic shifts in beauty in the past few months? Or what do you think is going to happen in the next two to three years? I, I think people are going to really start caring about results. I think it's going to be less about just the pretty packaging I think mm -hmm. people want, like going back to what we started the conversation with, I, pe I think people want more than, I think, I don't even think they're going to care about dermatologists tested anymore. I think that's table stakes. I think people are going to want to see before and afters and they're going to want so much proof past just influencers, past just reviews, because even reviews now I'm skeptical of like yeah, of course, brands yeah. that have thousands of reviews on Amazon. I'm like, Really? I, I, those can't all be legitimate. There's just no way. Yeah. I, I just feel like I think the customer is going to continue to get smarter and smarter. And I think brands are going to have to pull back the curtains and really prove that what they're doing is good for the environment, good for your skin, and actually effective. How does that, what would that look like? Would it be testimonials of before and after from direct from customers? Would it be some sort of third-party verification service for a lab? Mm -hmm. like, what could it be? That's a great question. I think that it's going to be a mix of things. I think founders are going to have to show face more. I think I've started doing it. I took over my TikTok. I'm trying to show that there's a human behind the brand. 
I think that we're going to have to start working if you're not yourself a doctor or licensed or certified in some way. I think that you're going to have to partner with those people and they're going to have to start to come to the forefront more. I think that companies that do the certifications, you can pay for a lot of that. And it's not, and you can pay for it and without knowing how in depth the studies go. So I think having the clinical, and this is stuff that I don't even have as the brand. I don't even have clinical studies because there's tens of thousands of dollars to do. I have the basic testing that you need, but I don't have these. So I think that there is going to have to be more of that, that it's going to put a lot of pressure on small brands to have to meet those standards. Um, I, I think that, you know, things like EGW or EWG certified, I don't know how much that stuff is going to matter because I think customers are going to see through it. I just think they're going to see, find a reason and a way to see through everything, every claim you make. So I think you just have to really be authentic to your brand and have the right morals and have the right heart about what you're doing and get the science and the people that can explain the science to back it. It's interesting. There are sites like wirecutter.com which are product review yeah. sites that, you know, if you want to buy a speaker or if you want to buy like a computer monitor or something like that, but it isn't necessarily focused on, on beauty. And then you have blogs that kind of do independent reviews of these products. But I wonder like where the trust is, who do people trust? They're going to be, because if you put like USDA certified, like people at this point are like, yeah, how many products have they certified that were terrible for you? And then 20 years mm-hmm. later, they're like, no, you can no longer use that product. Um, mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people have lost trust in those institutions. Um, I would definitely argue, agree that influencers don't have the influence they've had in the past. We talked about scientists, doctors, but even then we've seen bought in many ways in right. the past as well. And so how do you make it so that that people, what is the mechanic to make people really believe that these things work? Or some parts yeah. work and some others don't. I think it's just, I think everything you said is completely valid. And I think you're going to have to hear it. You're going to have to do the research on your own as the consumer. And you're not, you can't tell anyone what to think. You can't tell anyone what to believe. And I think it's going to go back to word of mouth and in your text groups with your friends and in your, maybe you've joined a community group somewhere I think it's going to come back to that. I think it's like backtracking to the days of like Facebook groups, maybe not actual Facebook groups, but where are people congregating? Maybe threads is like the new place that people are going to really tell it how it is and make those connections. And it's like a virtual word of mouth, like Twitter. So I feel, yeah, I think it's going to come. It's really just going to come back to your inner circles I know personally, I ask my girlfriends on a text thread, what products are you using? So I think that's ultimately how people are going to make their final decisions of where they're spending their money. We've seen a lot of movement on Reddit mm. uh, as of recent times. Because yeah. um, and the interesting thing about Reddit is that people are, they don't hold back. They're pretty brutal when it comes to discussing products and, and how they work. So we've seen that gain some popularity recently. Yeah, I've, so a lot of my research that I do is just me reading Reddit and me reading 
comments on social media. That's just a lot of where I get my inspiration. Aside from talking directly to my customers, I'll pick up the phone and call them and face we FaceTime, we email. So yeah, but Reddit is interesting. I've never advertised on it. I know that they have advertising. I just don't know how much people care about the advertising on Reddit as much as they do just like those niche um, communities on there. Yeah, organic. Organic is the play. It's just too hard now to pay and to keep up with any advertising on any platform. I'm actually really pushing Pinterest right now. We're posting five times a day, every single day, and seeing immense growth. I haven't seen it turn to sales yet, but I'm, that's a play that I have really not a lot of experience in, Or, but I'm trying to just push as much organic content out there as possible, and Pinterest is one of the vehicles to do that. What is coming for you for the next year? What is one thing you're excited about? I am so excited to meet estheticians and to get into this space. I think that I'm always focused on, I'm going to have D to C, I'm going to have retail, and that's always on my plate and my radar. But I'm really excited to learn from estheticians. I hired um, someone that's a licensed esthetician to work with me on the sales side. I'm going to be attending the trade shows and just trying to get more into that world because what I'm hearing, even at Cosmoprof, which isn't focused on estheticians, they come up to me, the ones that were there and said, oh, my customers, my clients rather are, this is their number one concern is having hyperpigmentation on these areas. And I just haven't found anything that has the right actives in it or that feels like approachable and cool and it's made for this specific concern. So I'm really excited about approaching that market and forming those partnerships. Like you mentioned, I want to maybe work with distributors directly there, work with other potentially companies that own the wax that they sell to estheticians. Like I think there's so many different avenues to reach these this group of people and these professionals and I'm just excited about exploring it and we will be coming out with new products to support this new endeavor as well. That's amazing. Alex, congratulations on all the progress. Thank Super you. Impressive. Thanks so much. Where can people find you? Okay, you can find us on our website forgottenskincare.com. I will create a code dilly25 for everyone that's listening. You can get 25% awesome. off. You can find us on Macy's.com. You can shop us on UrbanOutfitters.com. You can shop us in-store at 13 Loon in LA in the Beverly Hills store. And then also, of course, you can find us on Amazon. Amazing. Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks so much, Jacobo. It was really nice speaking with you. This was a lot of fun. Awesome. Same here. Bye. All right. Bye.